It's from Micah, uh, chapter 6, reading verses 1 to 8. The Lord's case against Israel. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, your everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against all his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the end land of slavery. I sent Jesus to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak the king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what I shall come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, David. Well, that was a star turn, considering that um, you weren't ready to do it, so that's good. And it had some real booby trap words in it, didn't it? So before I speak, let me just pray. Heavenly Father, as you spoke to the people of Israel through the prophets of old, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to stir us up to hear the message that you have for each one of us here this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, Lord. Amen. So if you're just thinking, boo, mind blown by that, then key thing, the key message today is to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Before we dive into any details, let me do a quick history lesson to give the original context for this passage. So here we go. You can ignore the names of the kings, that's not the important bit. Micah lived in a village about 25 miles from Jerusalem around the end of the 8th century BCE. And by that time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Confusingly, the northern one was called Israel. So um, two kingdoms, north and south, Israel and Judah. The northern kingdom had fallen to invading Assyrians who were now threatening Judah. Why do we need to know this? Well, the consequences were an influx of refugees from the north, creating economic pressure, heavier tax burdens for ordinary people to pay for the military build-up and tribute to bribe the Assyrians, 
There was fear that Judah might be next and a deep sense of confusion. Why had God let this happen? The context explains why the Israelites feel God isn't sticking to his covenant promises, where they are his chosen people with their own land and a special relationship with God. And that's important because it's relatable. Just turn on the TV to find situations where you might be thinking, where is God in this? Climate breakdown? The situation in Ukraine? The earthquake in Turkey and Syria, famine in East Africa, hotels housing asylum seekers set on fire, modern-day slavery, child labour. Do I need to go on? Maybe, too, there are things closer to home that make you want to cry out to God. One purpose of prophecy is to make sense of the world, to look at the cause and effect of disaster and to vindicate God's providence in the face of suffering. The decline of the nation of Israel and the suffering of the people were a consequence of sin, although those who suffered were not the main offenders. What were those in charge up to? Elsewhere in Micah's um, uh, story, we learn that far from helping those in need, those who were suffering from the national crisis, the elites were oppressing them. The poor were bearing the consequences, even though they weren't the ones at fault. Sound familiar? Isn't it like the poorest in our society bearing the brunt of the cost of living crisis? while the rich move their money offshore to tax shelters? Or vulnerable communities who have a tiny carbon footprint finding their existence threatened by the effects of climate change that they have done nothing to create? God calls on the mountains and foundations of the earth as his witnesses, and why shouldn't he? They were witnesses from the very beginning of all that he has done. They are witnesses to the truth. God is good. God is faithful. God has kept the terms of the covenant agreement. He has done everything to make the relationship work. And by way of evidence, as David read, God gives four examples. So he rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He gave them leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He protected them from the Moabites, and he led them across the Jordan into the Promised Land. They should remember and know this evidence of his steadfast love. And that means more than an intellectual exercise It's about actively recalling what God has done and is doing and showing a constantly renewed commitment to the relationship. It's a message for us too. So in adversity, we can read the promises of God in his word and we can recall when God has helped us in our everyday lives, which is why sharing time is important. In the next part of our reading, we hear the Israelites ask, what does God expect them to do then? 
and they come up with a list of four ideas that get ever more ridiculous as you go along. So burnt offerings, okay, that could be reasonable. Thousands of rams, well, Solomon might have gone that far, but it is starting to sound a bit OTT. 10,000 rivers of oil, come on. And finally, they offer their firstborn, their own dearest sons, asking the question that they can hardly expect God to answer yes to. As Christians hearing it now, this side of the cross, there's a deeper poignancy to that final suggestion because, of course, the sacrifice that reconciled man to God, which put right the relationship just as if it had never gone wrong, was God's giving of his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Israelites don't get it. God is looking for a committed relationship and they are obsessed with outward signs. God wants something more demanding than outward acts of piety. He wants total dedication of our lives. Worse than appearing empty-handed before God is appearing empty-hearted. So in verse 6, 8, my favourite Bible verse in the Bible, my, in 6, 8, we reach the climax of the peace. God doesn't want things. He wants something more demanding. As I say, total dedication of one's life. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the call of the prophets in a nutshell. It's not something new. Social justice was always centre stage for the prophets following the trends in Psalms and wisdom literature. It isn't rocket science. Let's break it down. Three bits. First of all, do justice. That's not a mere abstraction. Justice is about fairness, equity, putting things right as they are in God's kingdom. What's envisaged is more than simple obedience to the letter of the law. Do justice means to be faithful as God is faithful, holy as God is holy, to set those in bondage free, to hear compassionately the cries of those in slavery. To do for one's neighbour what God has so graciously done for us. It implies responsibility to ensure that the vulnerable and voiceless are not victims of those with power and privilege in society. And that's why it's such a good verse to consider when we think about Fair Trade Fortnight, which we're doing Fair Trade Weekend. It's only by doing acts of justice, by solidly standing with those in need of justice, by trying to resist injustice, that that justice becomes a reality. It's practical help for those in need. It requires action now. Do justice. Just do it. Or if you prefer the New Testament to a Nike ad... James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word, 
and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Second, love kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed. Hesed has a fuller meaning than just kindness. It's compassion, steadfast love, loving mercy, loyalty. And again, the choice of verb is important. Kindness is not a burden. We're asked to love kindness. The motivation is not obligation. It's in the contract, so I suppose I've got to. No. It's a natural response to the undeserved love that God has shown us. Hesed means coming to the rescue of the poor, the outcast, the alien, the slave, the powerless, hearing the cries of those in misery, giving love that's faithful, sustaining and enduring. It's the way that God loves his people, the way that God loves us. As a church, I can think of many ways we embody loving kindness. Think of the response to the earthquake appeal. Think of the support various people are giving to the Warm Space Initiative at the Rising Sun. Think of the ongoing dedication of David and Sue Sturgeon and all who give to the food bank. And it's also in the small everyday interactions that we have. This isn't just a message for the privileged. We all have power to some degree in our buying decisions, in how we lead our lives, how we respond to those in need, how we treat strangers, friends and family. If, if we cannot actually afford to switch to fair trade items in our grocery shopping, for example, we can still be a voice for change or add our prayers to those seeking an end to exploitation because those things cost zero pounds. Thirdly, walk humbly with God. To walk with God is to be aware of God's presence and guidance at all times throughout one's earthly journey. And it echoes um, Deuteronomy 10.12, which says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. And as you're probably aware, Jesus said something very similar, didn't he? This third element has two components that are not very fashionable in modern culture. First of all, obedience. Required to follow God's commands. And secondly, humility. The adverb humbly involves setting aside oneself, setting aside one's sense of entitlement and putting the focus on God. The message in Micah is that the suffering is a consequence of sin, that God continues to love his people, but the suffering they're experiencing is because those in power have strayed from his ways. They are not in step with him. They are oppressing the poor instead of doing justice and loving kindness. Does this not apply to the world we find ourselves in as well? 
what do we do in the face of the suffering we see? How will we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God this week? Let's have a moment of silence while we each of us respond to that challenge. It's not something you can resolve in a couple of minutes, is it? It's a takeaway. It's your homework.